Hey everyone, Raghav here, and before we get into this brand new episode, we do have a very urgent announcement to make, and that is for those of you who follow us on social media, you know that we primarily use Instagram for all of our content and are very active over there. Well, unfortunately, we've had to get a new Instagram account because, well, we got locked out of our previous one for an unknown reason, and Instagram has no support, so we can't get it back. So now we're at a new account, and that is at PreventPod instead of at PreventPodcast. The new account is P-R-E. V-E-N-T-P-O-D. For the details on what happened, make sure to go to that new account and uh, check out the story highlights because that's where we explain kind of the situation. And on that account, just as a heads up, we will be posting our new content, which you guys are looking forward to hopefully, but we will also be posting um, our older content from season one just to catch up to where our previous page was. We want to thank you guys for the continued support and hope to grow our page back to where it was and beyond and continue spreading the message of preventive medicine. And now with that announcement out of the way, let's get back to this episode. Overcoming saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths, we must now face a new enemy, ourselves. With the rates of diseases such as heart disease, stroke, diabetes, depression, and many others ballooning, we must find a better solution to these modern epidemics. The Preventive Medicine Podcast. We believe in building a foundation of health by means of prevention so that you can build the life you want and find fulfillment with no barriers. Hear from experts around the country on how to take your health into your hands. Take control and build a foundation of health for the life that you want to live. And now here's your hosts, Jason Garrett and Raghav Sharma. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast, the podcast designed to help you live a healthier and more fulfilling life. In this episode, we have the opportunity to sit down with Dr. Ed Laskowski, who is a physical medicine rehab doctor specializing in sports medicine at none other than the Mayo Clinic. Dr. Laskowski is the co-director of the Mayo Clinic Sports Medicine Center and nationally recognized for his many roles as a physician, researcher, author, and lecturer. He's incredibly passionate about lifestyle modification and exercise as medicine, and we have a fantastic conversation regarding practical steps to increase exercise and health at both a personal, institutional, and a national level. So without any further delay, let's get straight into it. We are talking a bit about sports medicine and just different other topics that come along with that and also being an academic physician at one of the most prestigious institutions in the entire world. So welcome, Dr. Laskowski. And um, um, as a first question, just kind of tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be where you are and why you're interested in sports medicine. Well, thanks, Raghav. It's a pleasure to be here with you all. And uh, well, you know, my background, I I guess um, I always grew up, um, I played tennis when I grew up, and then I also became a a competitive skier. So I was actually on the U.S. ski team for a bit. And uh, it was very interesting because there was a it was a world class skier. Actually, he won a gold medal and but he had a very severe ankle injury. And uh, the uh, I went to visit him in the hospital and in those days they had the x-ray on the view box there. So we had uh, an ankle fracture and it was plates and screws and all the plates and screws like a jigsaw puzzle put back together again. And uh, so I was like, wow, you know, but then his doctor came in while I was there and uh, you know, he's telling him about the procedure and everything. And then he turns to him and he says, he goes, oh, okay, Phil, 10% of the job is done now. I'm like, what? 10%? You fixed them. Mm -hmm. You know, you put all this. He goes, no, no. Now you got to get conditioned. Now you got to get rehab. I was like, hmm, 
that's kind of neat. <laughs> and so, uh, it, it kind of sports medicine. I, I, I love musculoskeletal medicine. Um, I like surgery, but not, uh, I don't have to be doing surgery. So this was kind of a neat fit. It's non-operative musculoskeletal medicine is my specialty, physical medicine, rehab and, uh, improving function in anybody from an elite athlete to a, uh, master's athlete to, a, a eight-year-old. So it's, it's very fulfilling and satisfying. So it's kind of a, it kind of ticked all the boxes for me. Uh, so we know based on your uh, social media activity that we know you're a, a big proponent of lifestyle management for improving public health. What does preventive medicine or preventive health mean to you personally? Well, I think, I think if we do stuff on the front end, uh, it, it prevents so much that can happen to us later in life. So uh, basically preventive medicine is keeping yourself in as the best possible health to have the best quality of life and also the best quantity of life. And, uh, you know, unfortunately now, um, you know, a lot of things combined, there's a lot of different factors, but we have an epidemic in our, in a world of sedentary lifestyle and of obesity. So uh, those fact, and, and a lot of those habits start early in, in our kids. So for us to have the best quality of life and quantity of life for our kids to have the best quantity and quality of life. Those are the preventive medicine. If we do these interventions early and if, or if we, we take them up later, but we were consistent with them, um, the benefits of them prevent so many diseases, so many conditions that could be disabling and impact both on our length of life and also on our quality of life. Mm -hmm. um, this is kind of like, I know it's a very multifactorial problem, obviously, and there's a lot of reasons why we are the way we are now, but what do you think is the main reason that this has happened and why we're at the epidemic that we are now? You know, again, I, I think you make a good point, right? That it's, it's multifactorial, but it's, it's, um, I, I think worldwide in China, I was lecturing in China. So about 20, 25% of industrial cities in China now uh, are obese. Um, so there's, there's, Affluence. I think when we can afford more, unfortunately, a lot of countries, they're affording more bad fast food. Um, I think technology, we can afford technology more than that's making us more sedentary when we get computers and things like that. Even in countries that they didn't have cars before. Now they have cars, there's traffic jams. So we're taking the car instead of walking. So I think there, there's so many factors that are combining and we've seen it in a generation. Really, if you look at uh, obesity statistics from the 1980s to now, there's been a huge generational shift. And so I think it is all those factors. Um, but I think the big danger now, there's a study that came out, they asked moms whose kids, they, they had selected these, these families and the kids out and all the kids had BMIs greater than 30. So, and again, BMI is not totally perfect, but it's a, it's a very good screen actually. And these kids had BMIs greater than 30, which is considered obese. And they asked the moms whether they thought their kid was obese. And 85% of the moms did not think their kid was obese. Oh. So mm -hmm. we've almost accepted a new standard yeah. now. And, and, and that's, that's worrisome. That's, that's dangerous. Yeah. So kind of piggybacking off that question, I just wanted to get your take on, so we're kind of at, at a certain juncture in, in different areas in the country and, and I guess in the world, I should say in, in America in particular, where, you know, people are looking for more acceptance of all body types, which, you know, we think is, is a good thing to accept people as they are and, you know, be kind to people of all, of all shapes and sizes. But do you think that the healthy at every size movement is detrimental to our, our work in trying to lower these preventable diseases? 
Well, I think it's a great question. I think I think we need to look at the data, though, and, and there's incredibly powerful data about what excess weight does to us, does to our system, our musculoskeletal system, our cardiovascular system. There was a New, New England Journal of Medicine study out there that every time I present the data from this study, it's pin drop silent in the room because this this study showed if you have a BMI of 30 to 34, which is again, obese range, you have a 200 to 300% higher mortality rate wow. than normal, normal weight adults. Not, more, not morbidity, more to death rate. If you have a BMI of 25 to 29.9, you have a 20 to 40% higher mortality. If I told you anything, well, you know, you do this, you're going to have a 200, 300% higher risk of death. I mean, it's, I mean, we're in the midst of COVID now, yeah, but this shocking. is, it's, it's striking, exactly shocking data. So, so I think education is part of it. And, and, the, and, and I, I think again, movement is uh, we don't want to focus on a number or you should be this, or you should be this number. We want to focus on movement. Movement is medicine. And, and stuff happens when we move, we, we begin to see benefits that will translate later, hopefully into reduction of body mass index. But, but I think the main thing is getting people moving and, and, but it, but there is a real thing of there, there is, there is consequences for excess weight, just like consequences of smoking. Can we get away with it? Yeah, we may be able to for, Oh, I had a hundred year old uncle who smoked. Okay. But you know, the, a lot of people aren't that blessed to, to be in that situation. So, um, I, you know, but I, but I think not being demeaning, not focusing on a number, not saying you should. I think, I think modeling it, I think modeling it to our peers as well as those around us is, is key. I have a secretary who lost 140 pounds because wow. I, I do these lectures a lot and she's, she's doing this stuff now. And, and the neat thing is that in her cubicle now, everybody else notices this and says, Oh, you know, what are you doing? Can, can I go on a walk with you or what do you eat for lunch? Oh, you know, okay. You know, and, and people kind of start, Oh, and that's the feed forward we want. We don't want it to be demeaning. We don't want it to be, you know, denigrating. But I think starting with movement as a starting point is a good point because we get so many myriad of benefits from that. And, and then stuff will happen that will lead to a reduced BMI. If we got the right movement going, if we get strength training in to increase lean body muscle, lean muscle mass and burn more calories, all those things together, I think will add, add together. But I do think we have to look it in the face and say, you know, this is a, this is a health concern. Your weight is a health concern. Yeah. I love that you mentioned uh, movement as medicine. And that was actually kind of our next question. You kind of explained already what we were going to ask in that question. But um, I think one of the things that people like end up hitting that roadblock or barrier with uh, movement as medicine is kind of just, it's just like a given in people's lives. They don't believe that walking or anything is going to give them any benefit. And they kind of just want like the single pill or single intervention or something that's going to help them out. And they're just like, they don't want to go to the physician and the physician's going to tell them just to walk. So how do you kind of explain to patients that doing these basic things like walking, maybe exercising a little bit more, maybe cutting back a little bit on the portions is going to have a large effect on their health? How do you explain that? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. I, I think, you know, again, education is important. And, and I see people on the opposite end too, is that, you know, they see these numbers like 150 minutes a week and they'll try and do it. They'll get sore and they'll say, oh, I'm done. I can't do this. <laughs> Make it, making it very enticing that saying that our data shows that any movement is good movement. One study showed as little as 10 minutes a week lowered all cause mortality. So that, I think that's the, sometimes when we have these numbers and people strive for them or think they should and, 
and don't do it. And oh, I'm done. I can't do that. Or, but you don't have to. And we have voluminous evidence that shows that walking, simple things, movement, you know, just, just taking that old parking the car further away, taking the stairs, the more we accumulate activity and our physical activity guidelines in our, in our 2018, these were first established in 2008, but 2018, we eliminated the 10 minute minimum requirement. In 2008, we had a requirement, well, you really should do stuff 10 minutes you know, straight. No, the voluminous data that shows that any activity is good. So I think educating them in that, um, making it easy for them. Uh, and it's a lot easier sometimes to get that movement and activity when it, we don't have to go somewhere and change clothes and shower and do something that, that anything we do that involves activity is, is good for us. And that's why I like the term sometimes physical activity rather than exercise, because exercise connotes maybe going somewhere doing something putting on spandex <laughs> but yeah. but movement is anything nope. we do and the more we accumulate that throughout the day the better so i think we could point to the data i think we can point to the effects of it i think you know just trying it um i think we need to be educators of our patients too and you know we did a study here it showed that only about a third of our docs were really educating our patients on exercises medicine really and really that should be a vital sign we're as you know american college of sports medicine exercises medicine we're we're trying to push that as sorry you get heart rate you get blood pressure you get how many minutes of activity do you do a week what do you do you know so that that should be a vital sign it's it's when the medical community takes it that seriously and when we can educate our patients about it that seriously then then i think that'll help as well but when we're again as a group not as consistent in that domain you know that 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 hurts as well yeah, I totally agree. I think one of the things that you hit on that I think is so incredibly important is that there's no, at least in the data we have right now, it's there's almost no minimum threshold of benefits exercise. And then on the opposite end of that, there's we still have yet to find the tipping point of where more exercise at a certain point becomes negative. So it's like this, it's almost like it's this exponentially beneficial thing, physical activity or exercise. Um, but at the same time, people don't have to start from couch to hitting those guidelines immediately to, to get the benefit. So that bridging that knowledge gap of, Hey, you don't have to start with 150 minutes. You'll get benefit from 10. Um, exactly. It's a good way to ease people into it. Exactly. And, and speaking of, of gaps in knowledge and, and, you know, we kind of experience a little bit on the medical school side, but I'm sure you deal with this all the time. The difference between academia and reality, when it comes to the things, you know, from the research and how to relay that to patients or the, the, uh, obstacles in the way of getting patients to buy into that sort of data. So how do you go about that? Well, it's a great question. And I, I think you guys mentioned it, the, the desire for a quick fix. And, you know, it's, it's funny because at our institution, we have, you know, some of the world's experts in regenerative medicine and, and it's a great area and nothing, I don't, know, don't want to cast any aspersions against it, but, but if you compare the best study in regenerative medicine domain and the, the studies on exercise the effect size of the studies on exercise are 800 times mm -hmm. that of the best study we have in regenerative medicine. Mm -hmm. And, but we're funneling a ton of money into regenerative medicine. And again, I, we should study it. We definitely, I'm not, I'm not saying we shouldn't, we should study it and look at it, but, but it's just taken off. And, but and I have people saying, you know, doc, you know, BMI of 48, squirt my knee with PRP and make me better. You know, it's like, <laughs> well, you know, there's, there's, there's something beyond PRP that we need mm -hmm. to do here. And, and foundation, it's it's fascinating when you look at physical activity actually causes immature stem cells to differentiate into lean muscle rather than fat. 
that's that's regenerative medicine. That truly is regenerative, evidence-based regenerative medicine. That's factual. Mm-hmm. We don't know about PRP. We don't know about so we don't know about all this yet. We're trying to figure it out. We're trying to find out what's best, what works. Very exciting. Again, not to say we shouldn't be looking at this area, but the elephant in the room is is what everybody out there is when you know they want this quick fix. They want this. So I think us as even in that that can be a gap in our you know we're kind of looking at these regenerative medicine and funneling all this air money into this area. And again, one out of three of us aren't even telling our patients about physical activity and exercise. Mm-hmm. So until we, until we make that shift and, and the importance of activity um, and physical activity increases telomerase activity and telomerase maintenance, truly regenerative medicine that really we could actually call exercise regenerative medicine. We, we technically, and at Mayo here, we, we actually call um, a lot of the PRP and stem cells, we call it orthobiologics because mm-hmm. they're really ortho means joint and bio, they're, they're biologic substances yeah. using the joint. They aren't really regenerative. They don't, they don't grow new cartilage, but, but exercise does actually regenerate stuff. It causes stuff to, to differentiate into to better tissue for us and, and, and do things that improve our longevity. So, you know, that's the shift that I think we have to get um, that, that these foundational things that seem so bad. Oh yeah, I know. But you know, give me this or give me this pill or give me mm-hmm. this shot. Yeah. You know, no, we're not going to give you the shot. We need to get, you know, 20 pounds off of you first. That's 80 pounds of load off your knee, hip and ankle. So yeah, being a new, being like M4s right now, Jason and I are kind of just entering the world of medicine and we have not seen that much or experienced of why the systems are the way they are and we don't know how things are built. So how do you think we can start to influence that maybe shift of funding and shift of resources towards um, telling patients and like instructing them and teaching them how to practice more of that preventive lifestyle versus shifting money into those orthobiologics and the different interventions that we have? Like, how do you, how do you bridge that gap there? I mean, I think it's, it's each one, you're going to have a sphere of influence for your medical societies, for your specialty society, for your medical group that you practice in eventually for your peers around you. Um, and that's how it is here too. And sports medicine in Mayo, you know, we make it a very art, you know, cause people, Oh, sports medicine, it's only for elite death. No, we're very inclusive. Anybody who wants to improve their health or fitness, um, we'll tell we've seen elite athletes. We've seen masters athletes. We've seen eight year olds. We've seen people with BMIs of 45 that we can improve. So we're very inclusive. And, uh, you know, this is a, this is a, a an encompassing problem and, and, and a far ranging problem, but I think it starts at the individual level. I mean, we have to have, like I said, one, one third of docs telling their pay, we have to start that conversation uh, amongst our specialties and amongst the groups that we can influence in the place where we practice. Um, We're trying now at Mayo to get that influence. We have a, a, a wellness committee. We used to have choices for, uh, we actually weren't that great. Some of our lunches that we had at meetings and stuff, they've had box lunches, a thousand calorie lunches, craziness. Mm -hmm. So in our cafeterias, we used to have kind of this much bad choice and this much good choice. And we kind of reversed that. Everybody wants choice. We're not taking any choice, but now we have this much bad choice or this much bad choice. And, and we have a ton more good choices for them Mm -hmm. to choose from. So we've kind of reversed that ratio. We've incentivized fitness. So our healthy living center, if you, the more you go, the less you pay. So we take deduction from your paycheck per, per biweekly period. If you belong to our healthy living center, which is a wonderful fitness facility, the more you use it, the less you pay. That we're, in, we're positively incentivizing cool you to yeah. do stuff. That's awesome. That's an yeah. amazing idea. So, you know, because we know that, that if you use it more, we'll have less healthcare costs from you. 
and Mayo is for a long time self-insured. So we're paying a lot of costs. And if we, if you, if you're active, we pay less for you. So in, in so many ways, I think you can kind of incentivize these things in the positive direction. And in our certainly our specialty societies, as you guys mentioned, American College of Sports Medicine exercises medicine that that. But even again, that's been around for a while, you know, and, and we begin to forget it. And, and again, these these perceptions, are we are we accepting a new normal? We can't. But I but I think it, it's going to be each one of you guys starting at the level where, you, where you're at in residency and where you're at in private practice and in your practice and academic practice or private practice, wherever you are, it's going to be your promulgation of those ideas that are going to influence that fear around you. And then mm-hmm. also your influence in your specialty society. You know, and I've tried in our Academy of Physical Medical Rehab and in ACSM, I've been involved in these chapters. So, you know, and like you say, even in Twitter, just getting the message out there, because some of these things, when you read them are, are just striking, you know, and oh, I didn't know that. Oh, it's that bad. And, you know, I knew it was bad. I didn't know it was that bad. It's that bad, you know. So, and sometimes I think when we hear it, I basically I've served on two president's councils under President Bush and Obama. And, and and our main mission in both of those was to get the word out, you know, that mm-hmm. really, again, a lot of these settings and lectures, you're, you know, people, when they, when they hear that data about the mortality rate, you know, it's just pin drop silent. And everybody comes up to me after, wow, I knew it was bad. I know it was that bad. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's that bad. And it's a global epidemic. So, you know, the more we kind of keep pushing and, and we, we need to have this cadre of people that are still voicing this, you know, because if the voice gets silent, we're, you know, it's, it's going to be bad. And that's almost exactly the reason that we started this podcast, because we want to make yeah. sure that this message does get out there and that we have physicians who are trying to have an impact in this field to continue doing that on our platform and hopefully our platform continue growing and uh, start to deliver that message to a much broader audience. Because we know that as a physician, like specifically as a sports medicine physician, you're able to impact that one patient. And then that can be fantastic. And that word of mouth can spread even within an institution to other sports medicine physicians. Yep. Yeah. At the end of the day, we need this to be a much larger effect size. And that often happens through like modern tools such as social media, which is um, kind of the thing that we're trying to do here. That's exceptional. Exactly right, guys. The more you can get the word out, the better. Yeah. And then as a kind of a quick follow-up question right there, you mentioned um, sports medicine. So in your specific like practice, what are you able to do as a sports medicine physician in the room with the patient that kind of incentivizes more of a preventive lifestyle? Well, I think, you know, again, emphasizing movement is medicine, but also that um, for injury prevention, uh, it's not practice that makes perfect. It's perfect practice. So a lot of what we do in sports medicine is analyze movement. So as you guys know, for ACL injuries, dynamic medial knee valgus, that inward diving of the knee on a single leg squat is a predictor for ACL injury. Um, perfect for, you know, technique. And you could have uh, lateral epicondylitis in tennis, right? And and I could do all the rehab I want in this. I could PRP this. We could surgerize and debride. But if I have a patient who leads with their elbow and slaps their wrist through they're going to get it again, again, again. So the, the way you do things is crucially important. So perfect practice. So whether you're swinging a golf club, whether you're throwing a baseball, whether you're running, whether you're skating, whether you're jumping, landing from jumping, cutting and pivoting, there's a right way, in essence, a right movement pattern that is protective that we want to train in. So again, no matter what your level is at, hopefully we can kind of give people the basics, you know, give people the basics to get them good cardiovascular fitness, good muscle strengthening exercise. And then if they have a desire to play a specific 
sport, get them the sport-specific training that they need, the movement patterns that they need, the foundational structure they need. And that's the key thing in young kids too. It's, as you guys know, a lot of a lot of things are neuromuscular engram patterns. So when you learn like, oh yeah, I learned how to play tennis from my friend, you know, well, you may not have learned right. And, and now to make you right, we have to write over that program over and over and over again. So it takes a while. So the, the better bang for your buck is to get those foundational things in really early and get them established soundly. Otherwise it's hard. And tennis, you know, you, you may, okay, I got the great stuff going when you're playing somebody less than you, but all of a sudden you play somebody better than you, you revert back to the survival tactics mm -hmm. and you revert back to the bad stuff. Cause that engram is still there. Mm -hmm. You just have to write over it a lot. So I think writing the good stuff in is key. Um, and in even ACL injury prevention programs, as you guys may know that once you stop doing the exercises, the risk goes right back up and people who aren't as compliant with some of the exercises, the risk goes right back up. So it's, it's something that, you know, we can identify that in people, we can train them to, to, to not have that risk pattern. So hopefully prevent them from injury. Um, we can give them the basics. So again, again, they may not, all right, I, I really don't like sports, but I want to be fit. Nothing wrong with that. We can give you the tools to do that. Uh, how do you be heart healthy? How do you how, muscle strengthening? And, and again, there's there's so many myths and misconceptions with exercise that have been perpetuated through the years. And again, I think by well-meaning individuals, but, you know, my football coach, you know, bring the bar to your chest in a bench, bring the bar to your chest. Let's go. <laughs> OK, for me to bring the bar to my chest, I'm back here. Now, that's a horrible position of incredible shear force in my rotator cuff and my AC joint. And really, for function and training, I'm beat back here. I don't want to be back here. Your power is from zero to from, from here to here. If I'm back here, I'm done. I'm beat. So why are you training somebody in a way that's not good for their sport position and also is in deleterious to your tissue? But that myth, that thing, how many people heard, bring the bar to your chest, bring the bar to your chest. That's it was based on tradition. It wasn't based on science and movement analysis. So we want to give them that, that, you know, dispel some of those myths and misconceptions as well of exercise. Some people think they have to do some things a certain way. I, every day I see people in my practice hurt themselves doing strength training, some exercise. So we have to teach them that perfect practice, both with their fitness exercise, as well as their sport exercise. I don't know if you're aware, but we also have a lot of content going alongside each episode over on our Instagram page. So if you aren't already following us there, make sure to go do so at Prevent Pod. We have a lot of content relating to each episode, including waveforms, different quotes that you can share with your friends and help us spread the message of preventive medicine. And with that, let's get back to the show. So how do you, so we know, like we've discussed a lot, kind of the biomedical situation of injuries, risk reduction, things like that. How do you address the psychosocial factors? Because I think one of the things that's been coming out more and more in the evidence in terms of both, uh, I guess, how people individually experience pain as well as injury, as well as the, the kind of unreliable nature of what we consider abnormal versus normal tissue change based on asymptomatic and symptomatic individuals with the same or similar findings on imaging. How do you address the psychosocial factors in, in your patients? 
Well, it's a great question, and and they're again they're varied. Uh, there's a there's a great like say for an ACL disruption. We actually had our sports psychologist see every one of our ACL patients because there's a significant amount of loss and depression that occurs when we're an athlete, a highly trained athlete is suddenly cut off, and it's going to be a year or more before they get to do what they've trained their whole life to do or a large part of their life to do. That's a significant loss and grief. So so certainly there can be significant grief and. and and so we want to we want to mitigate that as well. So I think treating the whole person uh, is important, and and we intervene with sports psychology when we need to in those areas. Um, as you know, there's a lot of risk in some of the the appearance sports like ballet um, and like gymnastics uh, of eating disorders. So again, we have to give that person a foundation other than that. And we have to, you know, again, we we want sports to be a part of life, but we don't want sports to be all of life. I had the blessing of, of participating as a medical doc at the Olympics and a few Olympics. And I, it was always fascinating to me, the athletes that were there for the experience, you know, they, you could just tell their spirit, they were there for the experience. They were meeting everybody from every country. Um, you know, they, they just got so much from it, but there were other athletes who were supposed to do well and didn't do well. And they were suicidal. Basically they were near suicidal and their whole their whole person was built on what they did, what their performance was. And that should never be the case. You know, we're, we're much more as people than what we can do as a, as a sport performance or whatever. So sometimes we have to get back to that, that, hey, you're more, you know, sports, sports are great, but sports should be a part of life. It's not, it's not all you are. You know, football isn't life. <laughs> football is part of life, you know, and it's, it can be a great part and you can have a lot of fun doing it. But, you know, we got a lot of other things to shoot for as well. And uh, so when we, when we find that total investor or there's, there's pathological training habits, things like that. Those are areas where our sports psychology can, can really intervene on. And I think really in, in just making, again, an emphasis on movement as well, because our, our single sport specialization, as you guys know, is a, is a high risk factor for, you know, kids burning out and kids actually, in fact, in pitchers, they, they, they did a study that showed if you, if you pitched in a baseball showcase, in essence, an elite level baseball pitching showcase, you did not go to the next level. You didn't get a college scholarship and you didn't get a, a pro contract. It, you know, cause you probably, to get there, you probably <laughs> are burned out and, you know, but the multi-sport athletes, the Michael Jordans, the yeah. Kobe Bryants, who did a whole mess of stuff growing up. I mean, you look at Tiger Woods now, he did have a golf club in his hand from age three and he's got an ACL disruption, his back is trapped, you know, it's, it's, it, it has a cumulative effect over time. So I think for the psyche as well, you know, we can get a lot of burnout when, with that single sports specialization. So I, I think intervening in those ways as we need to, um, and, and certainly making, making everybody, it should be very inclusive. Movement should be, I love the little league example of, of, you know, everybody plays, you know, and, and not a lot of cases are like that. Now we have a very select group of kids who are playing and everybody else is not make the team and not doing anything. And, and, and again, that doesn't mean we shouldn't strive for excellence. We should, but, but I think, you know, I, I think again, movement, we want to, we want to have fun. Everybody can learn from everybody else. There's something to be gained from each member of the team. And uh, you know, why not exploit that instead of limit it? And I think the point that you just uh, mentioned about like single sports specialization and whatnot is highlighted very well in the book range. I don't know if you read that by, uh, I think it was David Epstein, um, mm -hmm. but he talks about how it seems that a bunch of people who end up like as super pros are um, not necessarily like 
they didn't just do that when they were growing up. Like sometimes they didn't even play that sport until they were in their teenager years. And then they like suddenly picked it up and found out because they're doing so much other stuff, they were amazing at it. And then he highlights examples of like, yeah, Tiger Woods, when he was, he's amazing at golf and he's like the greatest ever to golf probably. But once he was done with golf, what happened after that? He doesn't like, there really doesn't have a life outside of golf. And as that relates to preventive medicine, I think um, a lot of people sometimes when they get injured playing their sport, they kind of don't know what else to do, don't have the habits and anything else developed and then kind of go down a spiral to where it's being unhealthy. And then they might not be able to participate in their sport as well as they could have when they were at their peak shape and then just continues that spiral and just keeps going down. So that's a very important one that you just made there. I totally agree. And, and sampling is key, especially in young kids. Cause you don't know how you're in. You may have, you know, again, we get this, oh, I, I was great at this and I want my kid to be great. Your kid may not be wired up that way. You know, we can see those of us who have children, how different your brothers and sisters, how different you guys are. You came from the same family, but you're wired up totally different. Mm-hmm. So the more that kids are exposed to differentness, you may find, oh, wow, I'm a great swimmer. I didn't know that. You know, or, wow, I'm great at tennis, you know, but the more sports sampling they try, um, the more they find out, you know, they kind of lean towards certain areas, maybe as more of their strength areas as well. So, um, yeah, excellent mm-hmm. point. So one thing that I, that this discussion has been great, maybe just think of this, you know, we we're kind of discussing it in a, in an offset way, genetics, because, you know, when you're talking about, you know, people being great at certain sports, genetics play a large role. Um, but I think also in terms of general population in obesity, what we're seeing right now is I think a lot of people are surprised when they learn that obesity has an incredibly large genetic component to it. Um, and there's a lot we're still learning about that. So how do you navigate that with patients? How do you deal with that in terms of, you know, you maybe, maybe you're having like a treating a, someone's child who has an injury, but, or some sort of issue and they're obese, their parents are obese. How do you discuss that with the family in terms of environment versus genetics, how much they can control versus what they can't control? So it's a great question. And we get that all the time because people won't say, you know what, doc, it's my mom, my dad, my grandma, grandpa, everybody's heavy. That's, that's just me. Gene, your genes are not your fate. And multiple, multiple studies have shown that lifestyle modifications and physical activity, diet, clean eating mitigate most all of the genetic effects. And there was a huge study that just uh, the UK Biobank, it was, it was millions and millions of people. They found that genes account for about 7% of a person influence on lifespan. So we used to think mm-hmm. genes are about 30% and all this gen, again, genetic engineering yeah. look, studying the genome. We thought we could intervene at these steps, mm-hmm. but now, now that we look at these large voluminous ancestry databases, and this was in the journal genetics, it's maybe about 7%. And we exercise mitigates almost everything. There's multiple studies show people with heart disease and risk for atrial fibrillation, genetic risk. If they're exercise, they reduce that by two thirds two thirds or one half of cardiovascular mortality. So again, a pill that would take this pill and you'd be half as likely to have a heart attack. Huh? What can do that? But, but exercise can't. So, so these, even these genetically predisposed, there's no doubt there's some genetic alleles and obesity alleles, genetic, obesity related alleles. We can modify them with physical activity. So, you know, really it's, so that's hope that even, yeah, my parents were like that and all that, but I don't have to be. And, and it's a significant, these aren't just little things that you can mitigate. You can almost obliterate the effects the genetic effects with, with lifestyle changes. Yeah. I think the more we learn about the epigenome and how many things we actually change with our environment and our activities, I think the more we learn that, like you said, your genetic 
start is not your genetic end. You have a, a significant input to what happens in that epigenetic region. Once you start getting into that territory with your environment, your diet, your, you know, your exercise and those things. Exactly. Yeah. And then, um, talking about all of these different preventive things that we have been like discussing with patients and maybe having more of an impact on a larger scale. Um, I don't want to make you speak for your institution, but what do you think is the, like the, um, the role of these larger institutions and academic institutions and kind of provo- promoting preventive medicine, promoting all these things? Because right now, when you look at the picture, it just seems that most of these large institutions are focusing on advancing their technologies and then advertising that it's like you drive on the highway, you see the billboards. We are not doing robot assisted surgery, whether or not that's good or bad for the patient. Like, what do you think the role is for these institutions in promoting preventive medicine? Great question. And, and again, we, we, we had a, we basically established a wellness committee here. So I was part of that committee along with others from other departments. And uh, again, I think if, if, if the institution pays attention to this, then I think that funnels down to everybody at the institution. So again, incentivizing your workout. So we have this beautiful, healthy living center. We'll pay you more if you use it we'll pay you you pay less to use it mm-hmm. if you use it more uh healthy choices um what we we've established a system of wellness champions so each work area we've had volunteers to be a wellness champion and these these wellness champions in their influence sphere so maybe it's a secretary pool or maybe it's a group of physical therapists or whatever they'll be a wellness champion for this group and what that wellness champion will do is send out periodic emails um, Um, you know, opportunities for fitness, opportunities for activity. Hey, did you know type things? Um, They may actually schedule some time off. We've actually scheduled for our allied health staff. You can actually schedule time in the day to go to use our healthy living center. So, and again, it's incentivized. We want you to be active. We want you to do that. Um, uh, we, We actually gave our secretaries who are in these cubicles pedal cycles. Um, that we can rotate around so they can have movement while they're seated. Um, accessibility for standing desks and things like that too. Treadmill desks, if 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 able. All those things, I think, an institution can be, can be supportive of. So, if if we're paying attention to what kind of food we give our employees, and again, give them more healthy choice, give them choice, but give them more healthy choices and make those enticing, make them taste good. That's a good thing. If we can incentivize physical activity, hey, you can do it even during your workday. We'll give you. We'll, we'll give you time off to go and to go and exercise for an hour if that's where you're going. Well, that's a good thing. If we, you know, we'll give them, you, you pay less if you use the facility more. That's a good thing. So, and then these wellness champions, that, that's that sphere of influence that it's, it's at each level and it's going to look different. The Department of Dermatology may look different than the Department of Physical Med and Rehab that may look different than the Department of Endocrinology, but each area will have its champions that can kind of promulgate those those concepts via education, via modeling, via, um, hey, we're going to get a group together. We're going to clean the, our our group uh, does the highway cleaning. So we're going to get active. We're going to get move and pick up all the garbage next in in the highway, whatever, whatever it is. Um, But those are the types of things I think that an institution can do to promote more wide scale change. It's hard to, and I think you got to model it from the top down. I mean, uh, you know, I I think the the leaders of the institution have to be walking the walk. Um, It's, it's a lot 
harder to do when you see somebody who, who is not a role model for you. And they say, well, why he's not doing it? Why should I do it? So I think the more our leaders emphasize that, what, what they do, um, you know, well, here's how I integrate activity. Here's how I integrate movement to my life. Um, I think that's a good thing too. It makes it more personal and it makes, uh, makes you know that, Hey, that person takes it seriously and they, they run this whole place. <laughs> so, you know, th- those types of things are important as well. Yeah, for sure. I totally agree. Do you, so one of the things that I guess is probably one of the, the most important things in, in what we're trying to accomplish here is, is addressing the barriers and the obstacles that lie in the way of, of making these, these changes for people. So in your mind, what is the biggest or some of the biggest barriers that, that prevent people from, from making these changes? You know, uh, it's a great question. I think a lot of it is, again, education, that that tradition can sometimes be there, that we have to dispel myths and misconceptions. It doesn't have to be that hard. I make it very enticing, you know, that, hey, you know what? I do two minutes in the morning, do two minutes in the afternoon. Next week, you do three minutes. Next week, you do four minutes. Next week, you do five. You know, it's enticing rather than they, they see this number, they try and do it, they get sore and oh, I'm done. I, I, I can't do that. But so any any amount is good. Just start slow, start low and, and progress slow. Um, and, and again, there are a lot of ways in which we can make it efficient. Like for the high intensity interval training, we can do those intervals. You can do walking intervals, just walk as hard as, as fast as you can, and then recover for a minute or two, walk as fast as you can. That's going to help you. Um, the strength training, dispelling some of those myths, you only have to do a set. Once you fatigue a muscle, you fatigue a muscle physiologically, you get it to adapt and do what it needs to do to get better. And so if I can only do that one set and get 90% of the benefits as a multi-set program, whoa, I spend 20 minutes doing it instead of an hour and 20 minutes. So those kind of educational components, I think are important to entice people to, Hey, maybe I can do this or maybe I should. Wow. And, and then they see the feed forward when they start doing some of these things, they actually do. Wow. I do. My muscle is improving. It's, it is getting better. There's a, there's a feed forward on that. Um, so when finding out what their barriers are, is it time? Is it a specific, you know, and they may have arthritis in their hip or knee and I, I can't run, I can't, but you can, do you have a pool neck? Is there a YMCA next to you? Is there an elliptical train? Can you do a stationary bike? Can you do a new step, a rowing machine? You know, there's, there's, there's so much adaptive equipment out there and there's so many ways to get movement that, you know, there's something out there for everybody. And, and maybe it's, maybe you love to watch a news program and maybe you do the cycling while you watch your news program. You combine them both, you know, whatever it is, there's, there's probably some way we can kind of weave activity into your life and, and kind of finding those ways that, you know, it's simple. I, I dinner, you, after dinner, you talk at the table, don't talk, get outside and walk, talk about the day. We, we, we walk while we're talking about the day, you know, it's, there's ways to do that, that are very um, seamless. They're very uh, not intimidating they're, but the more I think we weave activity into our day and movement, the better. We used to take our kids hiking. I know our, one of our kids was three years old when she hiked the seven, 7,400 peak mountain. But I remember we, wow. we did not force them. It's like, oh, look at that pine cone. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, it's just, we didn't, we didn't, oh, you have to do this. It's, no, it's just what we did as a family. And we always used to go to Colorado and hike. And now, now it's part of them. That's what they do. Okay. You know, we didn't, we didn't have to bang them over the head with it or force them to do it. It's just what we did as a family. And, you know, that, that was cool. That was what we did. So now they, they can't go, you know, oh, man, I didn't, I can't 
to get I got to get some movement and I didn't bike today or whatever. If a daughter in D.C. doing some work. Oh, yeah. She bikes all over the place. It's like so it's it's you know, I think once we establish that, um, that movement is weaving it as part and it's just like clean eating diets don't work. Right. Clean eating works. Right. And getting that basic cadre of foodstuffs that the basic that nothing is supplanted yet, you know, vegetable and fruit dominant lean meats and proteins, low saturated fats. Nothing is supplanted that. So when we get that in a practical fashion, delivered in a tasty way, that's that's going to help as well. Do you think in the current state we're at with the COVID-19 shutdowns and people being uh, what it seems to be more sedentary than ever, people's diets seem to be worse than ever, everyone seems to be, you know, getting takeout or ordering from home and not venturing outside as much. Do you think we're in, in store for a a big uptick in preventable diseases in the next few decades? You know, it's a great question. It, it certainly could be. I think COVID is a dual-edged sword. And some people I've met, it's given them a chance to devote to something. You know, they haven't had time and it's given them a time to to implement some of these things that we're talking about. But but a large portion, as you say, exactly, they they got more uh, movement at their workspace and their work activity than, than they do at home. So that's definitely a, a concern. And, you know, I think just for our mental health during this time, I mean, anxiety reduction, that, that is one of the immediate benefits of exercise. So mm -hmm. in this anxious time with so much stuff going on, um, that movement, again, the studies show it dep treats depression as effectively as cognitive behavioral therapy or Prozac. So again, it's better than any pill we can take for this stuff. So I think when the COVID is almost a different set of reasons to get into it, and that may be more of the psychosocial reasons to get into it. But um, you know, again, and, and we can be a, a, a role model for our family and for those we're in that sphere with during these COVID times as well. But, you know, we're trying again, strategies to get people again, it doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be intense. Uh, you know, these ways of getting movement can be woven into what you do during the day in a very seamless way. Hey, go out and play tag with the kids. I mean, that's, you know, you do that for 40 minutes. I guarantee you're going to get a good workout, you know, and it's, it's, it's just, it's just what we do. It's just family fun thing, you know? So the more we can do those types of things, I think, and, and in this COVID environment where families may be together, the more we could combine that, I think that's a good thing as well. Sure. And then um, going on with that, I think I already know what your answer is going to be for this, but we always ask our guests, um, let's say you're at a coffee shop, um, you're getting coffee, and then you have two minutes to wait until they call your name and someone asks you, hey, you're Dr. Laskowski, right? You're, uh, you talk about um, exercise on Twitter. How do I get healthy? What do you tell them in two minutes? What is your, like, your highest yield topic that you're going to tell them? That's <laughs> a great question. I, I think that, you know, the, the, what we've been talking about movement is my, Hey, met, movement is medicine. You know, we're made to move. Our bodies are made to move and we cannot believe the, the, the incredible benefits of movement in, in protecting us from cancer, protecting us from heart disease, improving our, our, our psychological status, improving our quality of life, improving our quantity of life. Movement is definitely medicine. And Hey, it doesn't have to be that hard. I think we have these, we have the Olympic athlete as a picture of the, Oh, you know, those guys are fit, but I'll never reach that. You know, you don't have to be an Olympic athlete to be fit. 
and 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 you just have to move <laughs> like we're made to so starting low and progressing slow again you don't have to do intense stuff sweating bullets putting spandex on and doing all this stuff you can any movement is good movement any movement makes a difference so the more we can get them to buy into that 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 this is this is probably the best medicine that we could ever take probably the best medicine that's ever been invented it's free um, and that it has benefits that far surpass any medicine we could give you, which has their own set of side effects. So I, I think those points, the, 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 the powerful nature of movement as medicine, what it does for us psychologically and physically, and, and also the ease of what it is. It's, it's really easy to do. It doesn't have to be the fancy stuff and, and intense stuff. And people think they have to be Arnold Schwarzenegger sweating bullets doing this. No, you don't have mm -hmm. to be that to have a very good quality of life and a very fit life. Yeah. I think if we were able to get like a TV ad for uh, exercise and bottle it into a pill and just say like the exercise pill, people would be a lot more enticed to uh, do it because <laughs> there's so many benefits that we talked about, almost zero side effects. So if we got an ad going for that, I think it'd be pretty successful. <laughs> and I also, like you said, I think one of the things that's so important is getting people to realize that exercise isn't just the extremes. I think it ends up being kind of an unfortunate example because those of us who are in healthcare who also have a passion for fitness or passion for like exercise, exercise, we usually are involved in some sort of maybe uh, sport or hobby that is on the more extreme end, you know, marathon running, ultra marathon running, power lifting, bodybuilding, you really like lifting weights or you're a triathlete. And then people see that and they're like, well, I either can be sedentary or I can be that. And that looks really hard. So in reality, there's a million different ways to, to get your physical activity in. And like you said, the varying levels don't have to be couch versus Arnold Schwarzenegger. It can be couch and then five minutes, then 10 minutes. And then maybe you find something you really enjoy, or maybe you just do the minimum to get a, to get your health benefits. Yeah. Yeah. So my, my uh, daughters loved uh, like Irish stepped like the river dance type stuff. And they just had a, they met a person and they, who, who knew this stuff and who taught them. And it was like, you know, it's like, it's amazing exercise, but it was like fun, you know? So they liked yeah. it. So finding things that combine something you may not think of, but it's movement and it's, and it's uh, dancing in general, you know, a lot of stuff that, that we may not think of this. Oh, well, that's not really, a, yes, it is. Movement is medicine. Definitely. All right. Well, uh, we want to thank you for your time. We don't want to keep you too long. We know you have a super busy schedule. So, um, we really appreciate your time and thank you for coming yes. on the podcast. My pleasure guys. It was an absolute delight and uh, keep up the great work you're doing. You're doing great work. Awesome. Yeah, thank, thank you so much for joining right. us today. Hey everyone, this is Raghav. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. If you want more content and to join in on the conversation, find us on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram at PreventPod. That's P-R-E-V-E-N-T-P-O-D. Thank you for listening and we'll see you on the next one.